welcome to Series 3, Women on the Move, Behind Closed Doors podcast series. I am Donnie Walford, the founder and managing director of Behind Closed Doors. In today's episode, I am so excited to be speaking with Holly Ransom. She is a globally renowned content curator, powerful speaker and master questioner with the belief that if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. Holly was named one of Australia's 100 most influential women by the Australian Financial Review. She has delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama and was Sir Richard Branson's nominee for Wired Magazine's smart list of future game changers to watch. She's interviewed the famous Barack Obama, Malcolm Gladwell and Richard Branson, to name a few. Please welcome Holly Ransom. So Holly Ransom, we are so excited that you're our guest today. Thank you so much for giving us your very, very special time. Thank you for having me, Donnie. I'm excited. (laughs) Wonderful. So you've achieved so many extraordinary things in your career and it's only just beginning. So let's just name a few achievements. Uh, Delivering a peace charter to the Dalai Lama, being nominated by Sir Richard Branson's Wired magazine Smart List of Future Game Changers to Watch and being the youngest person to be named among Australia's most influential women in 2012. So what do you think is your most influential achievement today and why? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think probably all of us interpret that through the lens of, I think, influence without impact is sort of not influence from my standpoint. So I guess the way that I think about that question is sort of what am I proudest of in terms of what I've worked on and and probably, you know, the answer to that for me still remains the, the G20 in, in 2014 when I was very fortunate to be given the opportunity by the Prime Minister to lead the Youth Summit for the G20, which for those listening who may not be familiar, is sort of a, a collection of the 20 most economically powerful countries who gather for a series of events leading ultimately to a leaders' summit every year. And they also have these summits that feed in the voices of other groups so they can hear the voices of business and civil society. And for many years, they'd have a youth dialogue, but the youth dialogue really hadn't been taken seriously or given much attention within the, the kind of corridors of power in those forums. And so we had this audacious goal. So when I got the phone call, I originally thought the Perth radio station where I grew up was pranking me. My, my friends were working afternoons at the time and I was like, oh yeah, sure, it's the Prime Minister's office. That'd be right. Um, but uh, when I was assured not was, they sort of said, look, can you organise a conference for, for 200 young people? We're hosting this thing called the G20 and thought, well, you know, yeah, I could organise a conference. I've done that before and put down the phone, jumped on Google and sort of had a mild heart attack at what I just said yes to. <laughs> Because, you know, you work out pretty quickly that the, the G20 has about 1.5 billion young people across those 20 nations. And Absolutely. when you think about the responsibility of that, for me, that was, well, we can't just host a conference. We've got to actually try and get something up in policy. And what is it that we would want to talk to world leaders about if we could try and consolidate it down into a single focus? Because acknowledging the bandwidth and time uh, of the policymakers, we're going to be trying to get the attention of what would it be? And so we drove for a global conversation around youth unemployment because that year as you know, we're seeing sort of reflected in, in some of the COVID reality at the moment, youth unemployment was three to four times the, the mainstream unemployment rate. You know, young people in Spain, 62, 64% youth unemployment that year, riots on the street and in Paris and in France. So an enormous kind of unified point of hurt. And I think for, for me, being able to coordinate this incredible group of volunteers 
from you know the leadership groups of, of youth delegates from across those 20 countries, but broadly the way that they mobilised people and influential figures within their own respective countries, ultimately leading to us in November of that year you know, becoming the first youth summit to influence the leaders' declaration and getting up measures around youth unemployment and, and measures around youth unemployment in every country strategy that was announced at that summit. That was monumental. And I think as well, because there were just so many points in that process where it would have been really easy to wave the white flag. There are a lot of moments where people didn't want to listen. The tides of some of the political discussion, even domestically, weren't weren't in our favour. So it was a really encouraging reminder of you focus on the issues and don't get too lost in the politicking of these policy processes. You can achieve an outcome. So for me, that would probably be the thing I'm still proudest of. And I remember meeting you when you were very, very young. And I remember wanting you to be our first female Prime Minister. (laughs) Do you remember that? I do remember that, yeah. (laughs) And then it had to be the first Liberal Prime Minister. But since those heady days of the G20 and the Youth Summit, did you ever really consider going into politics? No, to be honest. Oh, it would be wrong to say you don't consider it. I think anyone who's drawn to having an impact at scale naturally goes through a process of thinking about well, where do I best kind of deploy my time in a focus in order to try and produce a, a result of significant impact. And so that naturally, I think, lends itself to having conversations around systems, whether you're thinking about, okay, is it a role in business? Because increasingly we're seeing, obviously, the role of business in taking a stance on significant ESG related matters and being a vehicle for kind of standing for all manner of issues and putting pressure on the public agenda. And I think you also have a thought around, okay, is it in politics? And then obviously there's civil society sort of where there's always been quite a direct pathway to working on causes that you believe in. But I think it's really hard when I think about the last decade, and, and I'm sure that it's not too dissimilar to what, Don, if we'd had this conversation a decade ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, women would have said as well, you don't look at that arena and think, geez, that's a place to make change or geez, that's a place where I'm welcome and I would get to really make a significant contribution. And I think I was reminded of that watching Strong Female Lead on SBS Yes. A couple of weeks ago, it, it was hard to watch. I had to watch it in sittings because I got so distraught. I was so emotionally impacted watching it, how our first female prime minister was was treated and thinking about that as a reality of how so many women in public life have been treated and not just women, people who are diverse in, in whatever way we choose to consider diversity. So for me, I'm a big believer that change is going to come more from outside the system in the next generation than from within. I think in part because of the constraints of the party model and just the, the frustration with the, the system as it stands and the sort of the inability right now to see any kind of significant reform really changing that anytime soon. So I actually get excited by how much disruption I think lies ahead, even just watching the rise of sort of these much more leaderless type movements in the last few years and global coalitions and these different ways, different sectors are combining together, even around COP most recently. To I, and I was just going to say, what a great agenda. example. Yeah, acknowledging that the limitations of those sort of within the room, often that ultimately are responsible for setting policy settings and the role that we play from the outside in to try and push for better. If I'm going to sacrifice, whether it's family life, whether it's the level of time you'd have to spend away, whatever it might be, is it worth the return? And I think, again, on on that kind of reward for effort, you'd be putting your effort elsewhere.
So that probably leads us into you founding and establishing your own business, Emergent. What is your goal and legacy for this company and how do you see it influencing from the outside as you just talked about? Yeah, look, I founded Emergent six years ago and it's been an incredible journey since. I sort of never would have seen the the twists and turns my career has taken over that period and I've enjoyed every single one of it. I'm sort of one of those people where the moment it becomes predictable is the moment I get bored. So it's been fun that it's had the ability to take me work all across the world and in all sorts of different sectors. But my real passion is around democratising access to leadership development. I'm a a big believer that the tools, capability, learning in that realm is far too often behind a a paywall, a network wall, or a time barrier. And when we look at so much of the literature, we look at what these systems are currently, that the type of people that they are currently set up to be able to develop the leadership capabilities of, it's not evenly enough distributed. We need to ensure anyone who wants to be the, the change they want to see in the world, anyone who wants to have a voice and be able to have impact has access to the tools and capability that can help them to do so. And so for me, there's a whole lot in how do we how do we crack that open? How do we make this stuff so much more accessible? How do we make it more interactive and engaging so we're bringing up generations of millennial and Gen Z leaders into civic responsibility and helping them to participate and get involved? And how is it we're diversifying things? I mean, one of the reasons I wrote my book recently was because doing sort of the lit review on the leadership section while I was doing my master's it's overwhelmingly lacking in diversity. It's sort of all white male military leaders, sports coaches, and Jack Welsh type CEOs. And you and I know that's not what leaders look like. Some leaders do, but sure as hell not all the leaders I know and the leaders you know, Donnie. And it's not what leaders can look like or the vision of leadership we can be affording to present to a generation if we want to make a significant impact. The nature of the challenges ahead of us, they require so many different innovative contributions. Things like climate change don't happen by one type of person, one industry, one country being mobilised. They require all of us in our own way with our own sphere of influence to be doing our little bit. So I'm really passionate about making a significant dent in that conversation. And I'm sure you're going to. You just mentioned about your book. Why don't you tell our listeners why you wrote the book and what's the key message there? The book was in part motivated by spending some time doing my master's at Harvard and doing the leadership review sort of quite passionate about this idea around challenges before us require new leadership they require a diversity of leaders so what is it that we're sort of teaching people about what leadership looks like and also the skills they need to lead and as I said part of it was the want to diversify the storytelling so you know the book has 60 case studies there's equal gender representation there's leaders from 22 different countries of every generation from 42 different sectors so I think part of the problem with the leadership conversation right now is because of sort of this single archetype that's somewhat that we put up and and hold up as an example of leaders, a lot of people who don't look like that or lead like that go, oh, if that's what leadership is, then I'm obviously not a leader. And they kind of give over their agency and their ability to have influence because they think, or at some point someone's going to anoint me with an opportunity like that and until they do, that's above my pay grade or not my responsibility. So I think there was a need to really change that conversation around and and make sure a lot more people see themselves as being not only part of the solution, but responsible for outcomes as well, that collective notion. So that was a really important piece. And and I'm proud of the the new people I think readers will meet. You know, you'll know some of the, the incredible people I've been fortunate to interview, Barack Obama, Malcolm Gladwell, Sir Ken Robinson, Condoleezza Rice, people like that. But I, I truly think the people you'll leave the book talking about will be ones that you don't know yet. And I'm excited yeah. about that. 
And the, the second thing was I really wanted to make it pragmatic. It always struck me that so much of this is, is so academic or it's very abstract and it's like cool or even I get inspired by it, great idea notionally. Then that conversion into how do I put that into practice in my life? If I wanted to show up differently and do that tomorrow, what would I need to do? How would I go about that? What would that look like? It was an implementation kind of chasm and I wanted to help more people get across that. So every chapter's got all these practical ideas for how you can start this tomorrow, whether it's reflective questions that end every chapter, whether it's kind of practical exercises, whether it's how-tos, frameworks, it's really practical in that regard. So I really wanted to help not only change the, the conversation and show a lot more diverse examples of what leadership could look like, but help a lot more people put it into action. So uh, that was really the, the goal behind the book. You mentioned uh, about completing your master's just recently. That was a master of public policy. You were a Fulbright uh, scholar at the Harvard Kennedy School. Unfortunately, that, with COVID, that meant that you, you couldn't be on campus for most of your scholarship. What, what did the experience teach you? And does that have you remaining open to lifelong learning and has it helped you shape yourself as a leader because of that opportunity? Definitely. I think it's one of those experiences I will continue to look back on in my life and see all manner of different ways transformed my thinking and challenged me and as well was just a true highlight. I was lucky at least to start on campus living in Cambridge, which is, for those who who haven't been there, a place well worth putting on the bucket list. It's a beautiful part of the world, but just the experience of the people that are there on those campuses, some of the the seminars and talks you can go to, I I think that was one of the truly astounding parts of the experience is not just the quality of the people that you're in the classroom with, just learning technology policy from the Defence Secretary in the Obama administration and being talked through the negotiation on North Korea nuclear (laughs) weapons by the person who was chief negotiator for the United States. And just this incredible way that, and the US is so good at this, practitioner-led education. I really think we need more of that in Australia, where this complement the academic side of things with people that have got this really rich lived experience that can help people really bring the learning to life and understand how it applies in different contexts and scenarios. So that was sensational. The classmates were incredible, but also just the visitors that would happen to be on campus on any given day and week, the seminars that you could go to. I remember one night they were doing a mock simulation on a kind of cyber, I think it was a cryptocurrency situation. I'm trying to remember the exact specifics, but I just remember that sitting around the table, there was two former secretaries of state, a secretary of treasury, a secretary of defense, and a world-trade chief negotiator. You just, you're just sitting in as a crowd watching the deliberations go on in this situation. It was quite mind-blowing to just have the privilege of sitting and learning. So I think it, it did. I, I've always been passionate about learning. I think it reminded me of how important making those solid investments in learning are. I think we all find, or I hope everyone finds, sort of ways to be learning informally week to week, but just a reminder of where possible at these opportunities to invest, whether it's a week or a month in kind of concentrated learning in something that's significant in my incredibly good fortune at, at two years for this master's program, just the incredible benefit that that can pay, the dedicated thinking, the depth to which you can consider things, that time to debate and consider was really remarkable. And it already has. I mean, it inspired me to write the book. It's led to all sorts of new collaborations with classmates. It's certainly made me, I was quite passionate about working in the policy space, obviously beforehand, but it just made me even more passionate about public policy, spending so much time around people who 
love it and believe in it and believe in the power of policy to make good in the world. So all manner of things I think I'm incredibly grateful for for that experience. So is there a doctorate here in the future, Holly? <laughs> Gosh, I don't Dr. know. Dr. Holly. Dr. Holly, I don't, I don't know. I, I admire people so much who can do their doctorates. Um, Genevieve Bell at ANU is one of my absolute idols and she has had that conversation with me before. I, I admire people who have the ability to go to such extraordinary depth on a single topic. A mentor of mine just finished a doctorate in leadership actually and we were having a conversation about it last week and, you know, having spent sort of five, six years going deep in the subject, it was quite remarkable getting to talk to him about his sort of executive summary of what he's learned. But uh, nothing on the horizon at, at this point, that's for sure. I, I want to spend some time out sort of, uh, I think it's one thing to do the learning in isolation. What I love is then the learning in collaboration with others. So part of the great joy of having the book come out in July is now being out interacting with audiences and groups every week and seeing how the ideas resonate with them and, and where they're challenged by them and what they disagree with and what they'd add. And, and for me, that's when the learning comes to life is the real joy. So yeah, I think for a while I'll be playing in the applied learning space. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you a, a personal question now. As, as a youngster, you were very much a West Coast Eagles supporter and even had the ambition to win a Brownlow as a child. You're now serving as a non-exec director on, this is going to be hard for me to say, I think Port Power Board. Watch it. <laughs> Check your tone. <laughs> Do you oh, ever we've had re- such good banter for years. <laughs> Do you ever regret that they didn't have a women's team as you were growing up? I definitely regret. Well, I mean, it wasn't to regret. I guess I, I longed for. I, I remember quite vividly the just being distraught at age 10 that I wasn't allowed to keep playing a game that I loved and that all of my friends played at primary school and yeah. to be kicked off the team. And it is interesting. It's sort of only in those moments where we, it, it very fortunately, and I say this as a woman who's grown up as a millennial generation who stands on the shoulders of the giants, the women who went before us, that we're very fortunate that so many of the overt barriers to discrimination have have been removed for our generation so when you have that moment of really being confronted by oh no you can't because you're a girl it is it's shocking it's it bursts your bubble though in an important yeah. way and reminds you how much is still not equal not just here in Australia but obviously when we think about the sisterhood globally just the reality facing so many women right around the world so it was it was quite devastating and I think not that I knew it in those terms then but it sort of made me quite passionate in a way that I think only when you experience what exclusion feels like, it lights the fire of passion for wanting to make sure places and spaces are inclusive. So I think that led to a lot of my work through my teenage years and, and then through the rest of my life in gender equality and, and fundraisers for different causes and policy work in different spaces in that regard. I would have would have loved to have kept playing footy. I'm, I feel like it was truly an emotional experience, you know, having been very involved with the Port Adelaide bid for the AFLW licence and then ultimately getting our licence awarded this year. To think now that every girl and boy that grow up loving our football club can dream of playing for them one day is such an exciting moment I I just can't think about how full circle it is to have gone from that experience at age 10 to now thinking about having been able to play a small part in an amazing team effort to be able to secure us an AFLW women's license and and what a moment too for the whole competition and just broadly for women in sport the momentum that's getting behind it right now is is so exciting to see and I've said this to you for years Donnie I'm, I'm passionate about 
AFL in part because I absolutely love the game and I absolutely love the Port Adelaide Football Club. And I've been very fortunate. I think it's my sixth year as a director now involved in the the club to watch extraordinary growth and transformation very much in our premiership window at the moment. So hoping we can add to the, the trophy cabinet in the next few seasons But I also believe that sport has an incredibly powerful role, particularly AFL in this country. If AFL moves, you move the country. And what I mean by that is I think you'll turn around in 10 years and go, look what AFLW did for gender equality. Yes. Because we see these strong female role models. We see this very public conversation in a different realm about things like pay equity and conditions and the visibility of more women telling stories in the media and and all these sorts of things make such a profound difference. So I don't think we should underestimate just how important the ripple effect of what happens in the women's sport movement is for broader equality as well. Totally agree, Holly. You're an amazing individual, an amazing woman. I look forward to seeing what Holly's going to be doing on her 80th birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And finally, Holly, thank you so much from all our listeners. You've been amazing this morning. And uh, go the Crows. Oh, don't be ridiculous. Can't the power. Can't the power. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Women on the Move, the Behind Closed Doors podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. To find out more about Behind Closed Doors, visit www.behindcloseddoors.com where you can find the full range of membership options. Women on the Move was recorded on Ghana lands and is a Narrative Network audio production.